going to show you something quite special right now, at least I think it is. Um, on Wednesday, last Wednesday, uh, we are Kensington Temple. We're part of what we call the Elim Pentecostal movement. And last Wednesday, a large number of Elim ministers from up and down the country, uh, myself and Colin and some of the guys here included, met in Birmingham for a day of giving thanks and also seeking the Lord. Because last Wednesday uh, was the 100-year anniversary to the day when our Elim movement began under George Jeffries, who was the pioneer evangelist of the Elim movement and also uh, founded Kensington Temple, moved into this church, called it Kensington Temple, and uh, we've been here ever since. So here's a clip just to show you a little bit about what we'll be celebrating over the course of this year in our Elim movement. And so 100 years to the day last Wednesday. I just want to say that our movement has produced this lovely uh, memento of 100 years, the centenary. And it's a bit like one of these heavy coffee table books. And um, it goes through the history with key moments. And there's a whole section here also on Kensington Temple. And it's a limited edition. And we've got them at a special price at the moment, uh, £14.99. So if you're interested in having one of these, you can take a look at it at our bookstall. And uh, that might be something that you might want to have, not just to find out a little bit about the history of Kensington Temple and the Elim movement, but also uh, the book is talking about the future. And it's interesting that um, we are in this mini-series in January looking at the subject of revival. 
And uh, Elim, our movement, was born in revival. George Jeffries, you saw there just a picture of him and a few men and women banded together with their heart's desire to win this nation for the Lord, beginning in Ireland as, as they were situated. And the way they went about it was through strong praying and also through seeking God to move in healing power. George Jeffries would uh, move into a city. There would be a handful of them going into that city. And what they would do is they would hire a hall and they would just believe God and preach the gospel. And usually a defining miracle would take place that would spread the word about what was going on in this hall. And people would come out to be healed and to be saved. And then out of those healing revival moments, churches were born. Kensington Temple itself became George Jeffrey's headquarter church here in London. And he used to hold revival meetings not only in the Royal Albert Hall and in Westminster Central Hall, but healing and revival campaigns would take place here at Kensington Temple throughout the weeks. So revival is something that's very important, not only to the Elim movement, but also to our heritage here at Kensington Temple. And that's why I think every so often it's important to come back and to revisit what revival is. Because lots of people in charismatic churches talk about revival. In fact, sometimes I get fed up of people talking about revival. And what do people even mean by it? And what is it actually doing in their own lives? So this month of January, uh, with the launch of our centenary year, I thought it would be good for us to take, spend a few Sundays just thinking, well, what is revival? Is it in the Bible? What does it mean for us personally? And, uh, and why is it important? There are two books that are available because I can only stimulate your thinking and your praying about revival in this month. We can't go into too much detail. Um, that's not my desire. But we have two books that are available for you, and, and they're on uh, great offer normally because they were printed so long ago. That's the reason. And the first one is from our senior minister, Colin Dye, called Hearts on Fire, Walking in Personal Revival. And this was during one of the seasons that we've had at Kensington Temple where God was doing great works in people's hearts and there was a touch of reviving power in people's lives. And these are Colin's sermons during that period on personal revival. In fact, we were going to write a book together uh, during this time, but his book got quite fat. And then the book, that, the part that I was writing also got quite fat as well. And the book that I wrote was called Land of Hope and Glory, British Revival Through the Ages. So Colin is focusing on personal revival, what's going on in your heart. And in this book, each chapter is a different revival that took place here in Great Britain, right back from the Middle Ages to the Hebridean Revival of last century. So it gives you a flavor and a feel of how God has poured out his spirit in different ways over uh, the period. And they're priced three pounds each as well. So I encourage you, if you've not had these books, to uh, think about getting them. Uh, who, who hasn't had one of these books, just out of interest? Okay. You, those, both of you there? There you go. How generous for me to give six pounds worth of literature, right? but it, it is good. It's also wonderful and, and a wonderful surprise to have with us at the five o'clock teaching service today. Dr. R.T. Kendall. 
as, as you may know, we've been excited and talking about RT and Louise coming back in February for a six-month stint. We're looking forward to that. But RT is just passing through. He's actually going to be ministering at uh, J. John's conference in this coming week. And uh, it, was, it was just such a wonderful surprise for him to come and, and just to come in to be in church with us today. So that's wonderful, isn't it? Well, we're looking at an overview of the subject of revival, what revival is, and why do we need it. And last week, we looked at the word revival, especially in the Old Testament. We looked at Psalm 85, verse 6, that cry from the psalmist, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? The situation that the psalmist was facing was, was one of impotency, powerlessness, faithlessness, Devotion was low and it caused him, this negative situation caused him to cry out to the Lord, will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? The word revival, the root word in the Hebrew means to live and is linked to the idea of breath. So when we look at the word revival in the Old Testament, we can think of breathing in the breath of God, God breathing life. We spent some time in Ezekiel, which is a wonderful picture of God reviving power. During Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is brought out and he surveys a terrible situation of dry bones. And God asks him, can these dry bones live? Can they be revived? And God was asking, is it possible for a revival to come into this prophetic scenario that he'd showed Ezekiel. And we will see that often in revival, when you look at the scenario that you're faced with, if God was to ask us, can these dry bones live again? Naturally speaking, we would say no. Well, Ezekiel had a bit more faith than that and said, well, only you know, Lord. He understood that that revival comes if God desires it. It's a sovereign act of God. And we see the picture of God breathing, reviving this situation. And those dry bones were described to us as the house of Israel. So it was a picture of a revival situation, a dead situation, a dying situation, a lifeless situation, that God took the initiative in partnership with those that were looking at the scenario with prophetic eyes to bring about a revival, a refreshment. Revival is an experience in the life of God's people when the Holy Spirit comes and does an unusual work. It's primarily a work in believers. You can't revive something that's dead, so often we can, you hear people using the phrase revival, and they're speaking about maybe a nation coming to the Lord, and we shouldn't get het up about that, but you can't revive something that's dead in its sins. Resurrection is needed, isn't it? New life, new birth. But of course, true reviving of the church will have a knock-on effect in its life of witness and evangelism and discipleship. So where a church or a group of God's people is revived, so will its potency in preaching the gospel and in ministering to a sin-sick world. Revival brings life. It quickens people. 
that are acting as if they're dead. It awakens those that are lethargic, uh, sleepy Christians become alive to the things of God. And the things of God, the kingdom of God, these things become more real than the things of the earth. Uh, during times of revival, we find that God's people are very alive to the flesh, very alive to the world, very alive to the material world, but, but very quiet and dead to the things of God. Revival turns those things upside down. We looked at Acts chapter 2. as a picture and model of Pentecost and a, 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 a revival community that came out of it. And then we spoke about Two dangers that we can often find in the subject of revival. Two extremes. You may have met both extremes. The first extreme is somebody that's always talking and only interested in the exceptional and unusual work of the Holy Spirit. They're always talking about the revival and revival's just around the corner and if something strange or unusual or exciting seems to take place somewhere in the world, they'll be the first people to get their tickets and fly over there. And they're always looking for unusual. They're always looking for, for, for something that is, is different. And that's one extreme. And the problem with that type of individual is that they don't properly appreciate the regular ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. So you go to these type of people that are always talking about revival, and you, you ask them if they would like to get involved in the regular ministry of the church, the street teams or the cell groups, but they're not interested in that because they're waiting for the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for some great event to take place or some unusual work, and day-to-day -day Christian living and day-to-day -day faithfulness is not for them. That, that's for the that the average believer, and there can be an element of pride that comes into this. That's one extreme. The other extreme is those that emphasize the regular work of the Holy Spirit in the church and have no sense of desire or expectation for God to do something unusual, for God to come in power, for God to revive us again. Now, often these people have been put off ideas of revival by those that are running around wherever they're going and refusing to be faithful in the local church. They're looking for extraordinary, and they're not interested in the day-to-day -day work of the church, which is where God forms our character. They're put off by people like that. And they're often the faithful people that are there week in, week out, supporting the church, giving to the church. They're witnessing when they can. They're, they're, they've got their cell groups. But when you speak to them about perhaps God can do more than he's doing right now and that God could not only radically change their lives and the church that they're in, but he could also radically change a nation. And in a short period, they're not interested. They've not seen it. They've heard of revivals in the past, but it has no impact on their lives. And so they are neither seeking or expecting drastic change. Both of those extremes are indeed extremes. And uh, we need to be very grateful for everything that God does in our lives. Because we don't deserve anything, do we? And every touch of the Holy Spirit in a person's life... Is, is a gracious gift from, from God. 
But at the same time, we need to believe that God is at work and that he has great plans for the future. I said last week that I believe that the pursuit of revival is an end in itself. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, we're believing God for, for revival. We're preparing the altar. We're even putting water on the altar. And, and God's fire is going to come. And, and, but we're disappointed. We're disappointed. We thought that God was going to come this week. We thought that God was going to come this year. We thought he was going to come next year. And, and he hasn't. And we're dealing with discouragement and disappointment. And in fact, maybe this pursuit of revival is a negative thing because it's producing in us dis discouragement. We're, we're disheartened. I remember Gabriel, Gabriel Chan, one of the ministers here at Kensington Temple. He was doing his MA um, at our Elim Bible College, uh, Regents College. And uh, part of it was looking at the study of revival. And in one of his... Uh, tutor groups, they were sitting together and they were discussing about could God move in power and could, is revival something that we should presently seek God for? And Gabriel was saying, believing that we, that we shouldn't, that it was an important element. And then someone sitting there piped up and said to him, you know, I'm tired of all this talk of revival. Revival this and revival that. and re Revival's just round the corner, just round the corner, just round the corner. Now we're going in circles. I've, 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 I've bought the T-shirt, the guy said. I've bought the T-shirt. I've read the book. I've tried it. Revival doesn't work. Well, that person <laughs> was on the right course because he didn't really know what revival was all about. But when we talk about Revival being a pursuit in its end. Seeking God and seeking God to come in his power does an incredible work in your life. You see, if we, if, we, if we are not seeking God to come, if we are not like the prophets believing that the dry bones can live, if we're not like the psalmist crying out and saying, will you not re revive us again that your people may rejoice? If we aren't seeking God, then what's going to happen is we're going to hit a ceiling very soon in our spirituality. Uh, we will get to a certain temperature and we will just stay there. And our faith will reach a ceiling too. Because we'll say, well, all we've got is all we'll have. It will affect the way that we plan in our church. It'll affect the way that we um, model our church. If we don't believe the fire is going to fall, we're not going to spend time building an altar in our lives, are we, for God to fall on, or an altar in our church. We won't do that, and by not doing that, we, we, we end up in a very cold, sorry place. But the pursuit of God's reviving power is an end in itself, because even should we not see the great outpourings of God's breath and reviving in our time. Even if we should not see them, the work that God does in our hearts in believing and praying for him is, is, is an incredible work. And so the pursuit of God's reviving power. Now, I want to move a little bit today just to show you some patterns of revival. In the Bible, we looked at the book of Acts, and of course, God comes in whatever way that God wants to come, but that doesn't mean that we can't notice times 
that he did this. And I've just got a few for you to, to think on before next week when we come to look at personal revival, how God works revival in our hearts. And also then we'll look at some of the key revivals that have take, taken place in Britain. In Genesis 4, verse 26... Well, I'll start from 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Something had caused people to turn to the Lord in a way that they hadn't been turning to the Lord. The background, just before we see this turning and this calling upon the name of the Lord, is the terrible murder where Cain murdered Abel. We even see that referenced in the verse beforehand. There's a growing evidence of sickness and depravity that's taking place in the fallen world, and the need for God and the need for his grace is being recognized by a group of people. It's interesting that the word Enosh here means feeble or sickly. So to Seth, a son was born and he called his name Feeble, Sickly. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, there's a picture here that when people realize how feeble they really are, how sickly spiritually, let alone physically, but how sickly spiritually we really are, we come to the point where we say, we need to see a spiritual physician. We need God. And this is one of the marks that we can see again and again in Scripture when we talk about God's reviving work. There comes in people's lives a recognition of who we are without God. Our eyes are opened to our desperate situation the desperate situation of our hearts, the desperate situation of our lives without God. We no longer take things for granted. And so here, people began to call on the name of, their Lord, of the Lord because there was a deepening understanding that, hey, we really need God. And we need to call upon him. We need to go to him. We need to be healed by him. We need grace from him. We can think also, and I'm just picking out a few here. These are just illustrations, really, not nothing too technical. But we think of Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6. And again, there is a desperate situation of sin sickness. Things are so bad that it grieves God in his heart. And he says, I will blot out man from whom I've created in the face of the land. He was sorry that he'd made man on earth. And in this sorrow, there was a righteous man, one righteous man. You know the story, Noah. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was speaking to a perverse generation and he was confronting them with their sickly moral state. The hope being in this confrontation and this preaching 
that people would turn to God and call on the name of God and recognize the weakness that they're in and the sickliness of their lives and turn from their sin towards God. We know that God eventually gave up their generation to their sin. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah, another city that scorned the message of God in their day. Abraham saw the situation and wept over the situation, interceded over the situation. He was a righteous man and Sodom and Gomorrah was a horrific... I mean, you think of the worst place that you can think of and think again. This was a terrible situation. And yet, God was doing a work in Abraham's heart because when these situations of desperate situations... It is easy for God's righteous people to simply condemn and judge what they see. Even to condemn and judge what they see in God's people at that time. But Abraham gives us a picture of a heart that was turned towards those that were trapped in sin. And his prayer to God, his intercession to God, will you not spare them? You know, that's a heart... And that's the prayer of a revivalist. We saw, didn't we, in Genesis that people called on the name of the Lord. Uh, Often, God will begin a work of revival in our hearts, causing us to become desperate for God. Not desperate for desperate's sake, but desperate for for a, a real situation, not only in our own lives, that we face, where increasingly we realize we can't do it. Not changing the method, can't do it. Trying to modernize, can't do it. We realize that without God we can't do it. And Abraham had that intercession and he prayed that God would do it, but ten people could not be found. You see, there is often in these times of God's working a call of repentance. And remember, repentance isn't a negative word. Sometimes I think in Pentecostal circles, we misunderstand repentance. We tend to think of sometimes these meetings we've seen in Pentecostal circles where the preacher lambasts your sin, condemns your sin, and then at the end of it, when you feel so miserable, so down and so rotten, you're called to come to the front and weep and deal with your sin at the front. And so we have these sin lists of all the things that you're doing, the films you shouldn't be watching, the books you shouldn't be reading, the drinks you shouldn't be drinking. And, you, and, and it's an outward thing. But actually, revival is always an inward thing. Remember, God always works from the inside out. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus condemning outward acts by themselves, and again and again throughout that, talking about what's going on the inside of you, what's going on in, in your heart. And so revival is, is there, but we, we, we need to desperately seek revival, because we find here, both in Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, and other situations, that there comes a point where God's patience runs out. In fact, the way that God judges nations and peoples 
is by withholding his spirit. Think about that. Think about that. Withholding his spirit. Romans chapter 1 talks about the judgment of God and the wrath of God being revealed. We have the gospel being preached, which is the power of salvation to all that believe. We have on one hand the remedy, the power, the saving power of the gospel anointed by the outpouring of the Spirit. But then in the same verses we have the wrath of God is also revealed. Grace, mercy, judgment, wrath. And when the wrath of God is described, we see that three times judgment comes. But the judgment is this. God gives them over to their sin. What does he do? He simply lets them do what their wicked heart wants them to do. There is no intervention. The greatest judgment of God is when he doesn't intervene. Aren't you glad he intervened in your life? You know, you were heading on the road to destruction. And then God, for no other reason than his love and mercy, intervened. Thank God for his intervention. God is an interventionist in his mercy and grace. But in his wrath, three times, he gave them over to their futile mind. He gave them over to their ways. What an incredible way to judge, to say, well, if that's what you want, go ahead and do it. And of course, what takes place is when God doesn't intervene and allows sinful humanity to be given over to its own sin, the very judgment is in the sin, isn't it? As they sin, as they get stronger and stronger into these modes, then the results and the wages of those sins comes back to bite them. And so when we're seeking God for an intervention, we realize that God is an interventionist. He didn't leave the world in its sin, but he intervened and sent his only son into the world. And so in our hearts, we need to seek God as the interventionist. We need to say, Lord, we don't deserve you to come. There's no need for you to come. But don't withhold your spirit. On the contrary, we ask for more of your work. We're grateful for the work of the Spirit. His regular work in the church. His regular work in our lives. But Lord, we need something a little bit more irregular. We need a greater intervention. We can think of the patriarchs as well. The great fathers of, of, of Israel. Genesis 35, Jacob was in a desperate situation. His sons had been messing around and now we find that a, a whole confederate of peoples were against them, the Perizzites and the Canaanites. Uh, and, they, and just there in verse chapter 34 of Genesis, verse 30, he says, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a, pro a prostitute? Then look, here is a picture of a reviving work of God, an intervening work. God intervenes. God said to Abraham, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. 
purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us go up to Bethel, so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them on the terebinth tree that was in Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that are around them so that no one pursued the sons of Jacob. Isn't, can't you see how God graciously intervened? I mean, Jacob's household deserved judgment for what they had done. What, they, what those boys had done was, was wicked. But God said... God could have just let things happen. But he saw the distress of his people. And so he brings a word, a promise that comes into their heart that there can be a work of salvation and deliverance in a situation that looked like it was total destruction. It's interesting how many times in the Bible God's people or God's servants are put in a situation where it looks like it's totally over. It looks like it's all gone, it's all finished. And then God allows that to happen sometimes so that when he steps in, everybody knows that it will be God. But you can see that there's a work of reviving. I say reviving because what had happened is Jacob had got used to his life. He'd got used to things going well. He had forgotten the Lord, his God. Remember, one of the big warnings that Moses would give to the children of Israel, was not going through the wilderness, was not fighting to get the land. God's great warning to the children of Israel was when they got to the place of blessing in the promised land. And again and again, remember when you're in that land. Remember when you're blessed. Remember when you're, pros- when you're prospered. Remember, O Israel, it's God that gave you power to get wealth. Often one of the great dangers of a reviving work of God is the blessings that come after it. This is why we'll see in a couple of weeks' time uh, when we see great moves of revival, and we'll be looking at the history of revivals in Great Britain, we see that often those revivals will come very strongly and powerfully. But then the next generation or the generation after them will be so used to the benefits of what God had done, that they will simply live off the capital of the reviving work in the hearts of their forefathers. I mean, even John Wesley, and we'll look at him, even John Wesley, near the end of his life, he was complaining about the lack of zeal in the Methodist movement that had only been set on fire a few decades ago. People had got used to the new Methodist churches, the new Methodist way. A formalism was coming in. People were now uh, Methodist by denomination rather than by conviction. And by the end of his life, he was seeing the telltale signs. Well, interestingly enough, in the early 1800s, there was a group of Methodists that looked at the state, generally speaking, of the Methodist church. And they said, this isn't what we were born into. This isn't, this isn't what the working of God... And they were called themselves the primitive Methodists. And they got back out in the streets and got back out in the camp meetings and started to preach with the zeal and sought God. And God, God, God moved again. So Jacob, Jacob had got idols. His, he hadn't passed on his experience with God 
and, and his relationship with God in the right way to his sons. They may have heard the stories, but they didn't receive the meaning. They didn't seek to have their experience with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They were just the family history. We, we've got this book available, and you'll be hearing over the year, uh, the 100 years anniversary of, of, of the Elim movement. And we can read that as history, or we can try and find out what of God was in it? What can we learn from it? What do we need to revisit? What wells do we need to redig spiritually of our Father? So he purified himself. He knew what to do. It was a returning to the Lord. And the Lord was the first one that had reached out. And they went back, he went back to where he met God. Bethel, the house of God. We could move on to Moses and I don't want to spend much time there. Again, I just want to give you a feel, because I don't want you to think that revival is some sort of modern in invention, and that somehow, well, where's revival in the Bible, and maybe we can try and take Acts, and that's about it. But this is God's work. You see, the frailty of the human condition is that all of us, all of us, no matter how strong an encounter we may even have with God, all of us in ourselves have a tendency away from God. It's called the flesh. It's called the flesh. And the flesh has a tendency to pull us away from God. But the only answer to the flesh is the Holy Spirit. In fact, these two are warring passions. The flesh wars, flesh wars against the spirit, tries to quench it. But the spirit has great passion. I mean, James, after he speaks to a very carnal group of people that were involved in all types of fleshly wisdom and all types of carnal activities, looking for wealth and provision from the world and, and one another, he, say, he speaks to them, you're an adulterous generation because you have turned away from God. But then he says, but the Holy Spirit is jealous for you. Jealousy is a great passion. And when the Holy Spirit comes in jealousy, in power, it's an amazing thing. When the Holy Spirit comes to uh, uh, regain his bride, when he comes to take back his bride from the clutches of those that are prostituting him, he comes like a jealous, desiring, loving husband to reclaim and redeem his wife. The passions of the Holy Spirit are powerful. That's why in ourselves we have a tendency towards God. But as we seek God and the Holy Spirit, and, and, and then, then what happens is God comes and God brings a change. We don't want to be like the Galatians who experienced revival very quickly, but moved very quickly away from revival in a matter of weeks and months. In fact, Paul couldn't believe how quickly they had withdrawn from God's reviving work and from partnering with the Spirit. He said, I, he, says, I can't, he said, you foolish Galatians. The message of the gospel was there, the cross. But you started in the spirit. Have you so quickly decided that you're going to finish your life in the flesh? Didn't you receive the spirit? It does works of miracles and unusual operations were taking place in Galatians. And what they turned from that to human methods and human needs, they were no longer relying on God. The Moses generation, Exodus 2, 23, God heard their cries. It's the cry again. 
It's, it's the calling on the Lord. They were under such oppression. God heard, heard their cry, heard their recognition and came and brought them a deliverer. We think of Joshua. There were great moves of consecration with God. God met with Joshua in a very powerful way and God met with the people in a very powerful way. And when they crossed the river Jordan, they had sanctified themselves. They had turned to the Lord and and God was giving them success. But later on in Joshua, near the end, he he had to bring them again back to the Lord. And uh, he said to them in Joshua chapter 24, verse 1 and on to 32, I won't say that. He said, you need to decide, who are you going to serve? But as for me and my house will serve the Lord. And they went with him. And all the people that covenanted together to serve the Lord, even after he died, that generation was a revived generation. And then, of course, you come to Judges, which is nothing else but a series of, of revivals of God. Revivals were so necessary during the time of Judges, again and again and again. Uh, you, you find this cycle in Judges. I could give you the scriptures. I don't think it's necessary. I just want to give you a feel. What happens is, is that the people turn away from God. They don't need God anymore. Everything's fine. They're not calling on the name of, of the Lord. They're just enjoying the world and everything that they've got from it. And so God allows their enemies to be victorious. God allows the enemies You see, when you see the enemies of the gospel being victorious, don't give up. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's seek God. And sometimes these enemies of the gospel, well, sometimes, maybe all of the time, the enemies of the gospel are sent by God as part of his process to stimulate the church. I mean, we'll talk about how this works in a personal way next year, but but I don't, I don't know about you, but there's sometimes in my life as a Christian that some of the most difficult people have produced some of the most spiritual results in my life. Why? Because I've had to learn to handle them godly. I've had to learn to pray for them. I've had to learn to deal with everything in me. Here's this enemy or this, this person making my life a misery. And uh, what, what happens is all this stuff in me that needs to be dealt with comes up. And, and I realize now that I need to seek God. So when we see enemies of the gospel and false religion rearing its ugly head again and again and again, we don't despair, we go to the Lord. Because these have been sent in order that we might be revived. Isn't it true in a personal way? Again, I'll mention this next week. Isn't it true that sometimes in our lives, if we're honest, it's taken a lot to get us on our knees? I mean, I think sometimes when I look back in my life, some, some of the stubbornness, I didn't realize it was stubbornness at the time. The thing's going on, but I didn't pray. James says, hey, if anybody's suffering, pray. Why? Because that's how you deal with suffering, both the suffering on the inside and the circumstance on the outside. And, and we'll do anything, won't we, sometimes, but pray. And so God just lets it get hotter and hotter and hotter in the furnace of the situation until the place comes where we break. Well, breaking is a good place. I'm not talking about the brokenness of sin in the world. I'm talking about being broken before God. And you break and you get on your knees and you say, I can't do it, Lord. And you weep before the Lord. 
The power of a wet eye is a powerful thing. I don't know about, well, I, all I can say is this. The older I get, the more I weep. Tears come to my eye a lot quicker than they've ever done before. About good things, beautiful little things uh, will bring a tear to my eye. Terrible things will bring a tear to my eye. And you know what? I like it. Because I believe that, that tears soften our heart. And soft hearts bring tears. And I think tears are very precious before the Lord. You know, laughter is wonderful, isn't it? I love laughter. There's been times in my life when extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit have been taking place in a meeting where I just find myself happy and joyful and laughing and laughing. I remember one time with Colin we, and, and the John and Carol Arnott just prayed for us and we found ourselves rolling on the floor, tangled up, laughing and laughing. We were just wonderful. Did the Holy Spirit make you laugh? I don't know. I felt like laughing. And I, and I felt so relieved and so blessed. And the effects of that experience lasted for quite a while. And every time I think about it, I feel good. But how many of us know the power of tears? When you've wept till there's no more weeping. And yet at the same time, there's a great work of God that's gone, gone in your heart. And often, after you've wept till you can wep no more, isn't there a stillness? Isn't there a, is, God has been a healing work in your heart. It's good to laugh. It's better to cry. Crying is a positive thing. It, it, it can be used greatly by the Holy Spirit. Anyway, we talk, we're talking about the effects of what sometimes may happen when the Holy Spirit moves in power. So we have this cycle. We don't need God in uh, the judges. And then all of a sudden, the enemies come in and people go, we need God. And then they cry out to the Lord. And God says, oh, you need me now. Yes, we need you. So God sends his spirit usually on a charismatic individual at that time. God sends his spirit, an extraordinary work of his spirit, raising up, up a man or a woman for the time, and suddenly there is deliverance and breakthrough and miracles, and, and you get people like Gideon's doing incredible things. Amazing strategies come from the Holy Spirit, and everybody's out, everybody's blessed, everybody's rejoicing. That's the danger. And then, of course, a few years later, a new generation arises, people take things for granted, Take God for granted and the blessings and the ordinary and, and normal work of, the, of God amongst them. They take that for granted and they begin to turn away from How fickle our hearts are. But you know what? To know that our hearts is fickle is strength. To know the fickleness of, of, of your heart. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel that I've, I've come on a long way with the Lord. I feel, you know, I've really grown in the Lord. And, and then all of a sudden, something happens in my emotions. I'm almost driven. I thought... How can I still be feeling like that? You know? I mean, oh, a few days ago, I'll just share this with you. because A few days ago, here I, I think I'm growing in the Lord. I think I'm growing in my understanding of God. I think I'm understanding the value of tests and trials. And I think I'm doing all right. And then my daughter's Christmas day, Christmas morning. You know that she's epileptic. Christmas morning, which is also my birthday. Big day for me. So I wake up, and uh, Nicola says, I can hear something in Charlotte's room. We go into Charlotte's room. She has the worst fit you could ever imagine. I mean, she is shaking on the floor, and I am panic-stricken, panic-stricken. And, and, and I'm rushing, and I'm trying to get the medicine, and um, I'm dropping it, and, and, and Nicola, and, and I, I, fi I find myself, Literally shaking my fist at God. I'm 
I know. It's funny now. It wasn't then, is it? And then she's all right, and she's sorted. And I'm fine about it, but I'm not fine. I don't realize that deep down I'm, I'm highly offended by God. It's my birthday. Couldn't this have happened another? It's my birthday. Happy birthday, Bruce. Merry Christmas, everybody. See you at church. But when the dust had settled, what really concerned me, and still does today, how could I ever shake my fist at God? If you had said to me, Bruce, you're the sort of person that could shit, literally physically shake your fist at God, I would say, I'm sorry, I've passed on that. I've, I've moved on. I've got plenty to go. I'm, I'm, not, I'm under no, you know, but shake my fist at God when everything I have and life comes from him. So I thought, my God, look what's in me. And, you know, I've been dealing with that before the Lord, and he's gracious and everything, but do you know what? <laughs> That's a good place to be. You hear what I'm saying? That's a place where we're going to seek God for his spirit. God, I need you more. I never thought I would shake my fist at you. Even if I was panic-stricken, to sooner to literally physically shake my fist at you. Like some Old Testament. Glad, you, glad we're in the New Testament. You can get struck down with lightning. I'm glad it wasn't a rock with a staff in my hand. But I remember thinking to myself, I mean, seriously, I'll close on it. I remember only a few weeks ago thinking about Moses striking the rock and what a fool he was. And how could he possibly have done that with everything he'd seen and everything that he'd known? How could he possibly not, you know, shake his fist at God? I just thought, I don't understand this. This is, this, this, this doesn't, what, what a strange person he was. And then a couple of weeks later, literally shaking my fist at God like a cartoon character. This is why revival is important, because the pursuit of God's spirit is an end in itself. And the pursuit of God's outpouring is an end in itself. And they were of one accord, seeking God on the day uh, up until Pentecost. And I tell you what, it sure whittled out down the church, didn't it? I mean, the multitudes and the thousands that with Jesus. And then he says, tarry, and I'll visit you with the Holy Spirit, revival from on high. And so they say, well, what do we do? Well, we're going to seek God. Seek God. You're there tonight, the prayer meeting, yes. You're there tonight, tomorrow. And after a while, it got whittled down. In the 500 of them, and one place saw him resurrected, but there was only just over 100. Jesus' church, his great ministry of thousands and thousands and thousands, was whittled down to just over 100 people. Sometimes we can feel that we've been whittled down that we've lost our energy and our power and, or that we're not effective in our family or effective in our neighborhood or effective for Jesus and we can feel whittled, whittled down. Hey, but if we're in the upper room seeking God, we're in the right place and at the right time, the power of God fell and that tiny, whittled down church, 120, was 120 or 30? 120 people. Is that the fruit of Jesus's... Jesus planted a church with all that power, ended up 120 people. Holy Spirit came. The rest is history, which we'll look at starting next week. God bless you.